You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another installment of City Lights Live, the official online version of the City Lights events calendar. My name is Peter Maravellis. I'm the events director here at City Lights. Tonight, we are delighted to welcome back to the house Kristen R. Godsey. We had a great pleasure of hosting her back in August of 22 for her wonderful Verso book, Red Valkyries. Tonight, we celebrate the publication of yet another eagerly awaited new book by her. It's called Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and it is a fascinating, very absorbing exploration Following 2,000 years of utopian thinking and experimentation, exploring better ways to live our daily lives. City Lights, of course, is well known for its interest in alternative currents of philosophy and the history of liberatory movements around the world. So we have a great deal of enthusiasm towards this book and in general towards the scholarship of Professor Godsey. So Professor Godsey is an award-winning professor of Russian and East European studies and a member of the Graduate Group in Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her articles and essays have been translated into over 25 languages and have appeared in such diverse publications as Descent, The Baffler, and The New York Times, amongst many others. She is also the author of 10 books and is also the host of the podcast AK-47, 47 Selections from the Works of Alexandra Kolontai. As is customary at the beginning of each event, I would like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Please join us now in offering a warm welcome to Kristen R. Godsey. Welcome back to City Lights. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm actually beaming to you from Berlin right now. It's three <laughs> o'clock in the morning here. So um, it's I've got my handy red bill uh, and I am very excited to be back. I am, you know, really delighted that this book is out there in the world. The, the, the kind of origin of this book is a is a bizarre set of circumstances. It's really very much a, a pandemic book. Um, and I think that, you know, we're now at a moment when a lot of writers are are bringing these books out into the world. You know, it's, it, it's been the times that the the pandemic really brought a lot of people into rethinking the way that they live. And for some of us, I think, you know, there were people who were baking sourdough bread or maybe brewing kombucha from scratch or, you know, finding new hobbies and ways to keep themselves busy. And for me, the the way that I kind of, I don't know, occupied the very, very long days, especially in those early uh, parts of the pandemic, was to to think a lot and read a lot about different utopian communities, really starting all the way back with Chattahoyuk in the Neolithic. In uh, Chattahoyuk is an archaeological site in what is present-day Turkey. Uh, and then thinking about communities like the Pythagoreans in Croton, which is in southern Italy today. Uh, many people know Pythagoras as the guy who created the Pythagorean theorem, but a lot of people don't realize that he also lived kind of in community in this group uh, with this group of people um, that left mainland Greece to settle in what is now Italy. And uh, they shared their property in common and treated men and women as equals and basically had, you know, a bunch of really interesting beliefs that then ultimately sort of inspired, if we are to believe the third century philosopher Iambiclus ended up inspiring Plato to write the Republic, um, and to, to think about Calypolis, his ideal city. And so from that weird um, kind of ancient, you know, looking at prehistory, looking at the Neolithic period, and then sort of starting to think historically about some ideal visions of society, I kind of did this interesting intellectual history. I, I, you know, I found myself going down all these different rabbit holes. 
And it was a really interesting experience to sort of look at different communities across cultures and at different historical epochs and realize that there were sort of a certain basic number of precepts or practices that they were instantiating in their daily lives that seemed to resonate in lots of different places. Um, and they sort of coalesce around a certain kind of package of policies. And my last book, why women have better sex under socialism, my sort of last more popular book, why women have better sex under socialism and other arguments for economic independence was really a look at the kinds of state policies that would make people's lives more contented and connected and less precarious. And particularly to facilitate things like gender and sexual equality. Um, but it was those, that was a book that was really looking at the role of the state. And in the aftermath of that book, I started really you know, I gave a lot of different talks and I, that book was, ended up being translated into, I think it's like 15 languages now. So it, it had a much more salient kind of life outside of the United States than I was expecting. I mean, actually I didn't, I didn't even realize that books could get translated. So I was really surprised by all of these translations that started appearing and all of the different reviews and reactions that I was getting. And one of the things that I was really surprised by was this reaction that I got often over and over again about how a lot of, and this was like the classic sentence that I heard, oh, these things are so good in theory, but they will never work in practice. And, um, and if I would start talking about things like, you know, universal basic income or, you know, some kind of universal subsidized childcare or even, you know, more, um, aggressive policies to kind of widen our social safety nets, people would say, oh, those are just utopian dreams. Like that's never going to happen. And especially I think this conversation was really animated around things like the citizens dividend or what is called universal basic income. People would just say, well, the government cannot give money away. The government can't give money away. That's never going to work. Right. And then what happened, right? March, 2020 comes along, everything shuts down the world changes and all around the world, governments start giving money away. So it like the, this thing that had once seemed completely and utterly impossible, the government giving money away became basically standard practice in a lot of countries. And many countries were very generous, much more generous than the United States, but even the United States, you know, um, was able to, to distribute income in a way that I think is really interesting. And so we're in a moment and I start the book by talking about the ways in which great social and political and economic upheavals often create conditions for utopian thinking. Um, and utopian thinking, it has this particular, um, historically and cross-culturally, when we think about utopias in our private lives, and that's really the focus that I wanted to have in this book was in the domestic sphere, because there are a lot of people out there, like the French economist Thomas Piketty, who's writing about, you know, global wealth taxes and uh, universal inheritance for, you know, all young people when they turn 25, they get like 150 euro or something like that. Um, not sorry, 150,000 euro, not 150, 150,000 euro is this universal um, policy for everybody, you know, to try to deal with global inequality. But, but, but what I was really interested in is in the private sphere. And given that we have a state, I would say, and especially in the United States, but this may be true in other places as well, that is not responsive, that it is not going to be able to do the kinds of things that we want the state to do in order to make our lives more contented and connected and less precarious. I think that Everyday Utopia is a book about what we can do, like what we can learn from all of these different historical and cross-cultural experiments that have been done throughout time around rearranging our domestic lives. And so the way that I imagined the book um, is I start with this sort of introductory chapter, which deals with just sort of why we need utopia. What, what is utopia as a concept? Why is it useful? Where does it come from? And, um, and when does it appear? And, and I make this sort of kind of historical claim, you know, that's, I think, just an interesting sort of red thread is that it's usually during times of great upheaval. So if we think about Plato's Republic, it comes right after the Peloponnesian Wars. 
and the end of the golden age of Athenian democracy. If we look at Thomas More's, you know, par- the, the 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 book that was called Utopia that coined the word, that uh, comes after the you know the voyages of Columbia, uh, sorry, of um, Christopher Columbus and Amerigo Vespucci, right in fourteen ninety two. Um, it's published in 1516. So it's sort of reaction to, oh my God, like if there are these worlds over there that we didn't know about, maybe there are other ways of organizing our lives. And then 1602, Tommaso Campanella's City of the Sun is a book that kind of emerges after the revelations of Copernicus and heliocentrism. So, and and, and there are other examples like this. And so I do think that the, the pandemic um, really kind of shook people up. And and I think also the climate crisis and and particularly right now with all of these heat waves, I was just in Southern Germany this morning, the last couple of days in Southern Europe has been brutally and unexpectedly and unprecedentedly hot. Um, And so I think people are kind of open-minded to these new ideas. And I try to start the book by talking about how this is the moment for us to dream big. And then I work my way through the kind of main precepts. So the first chapter, the second chapter after the introduction is about housing. The the chapter after that is about childcare. There's a chapter on education. And then there is a chapter on property. And there are two chapters on the nuclear family. And then at the very end of the book, I write a chapter called the Star Trek Game Plan, which is really a chapter about flexing our cognitive capacities for hope and why I think that hope is so important. And I can talk about that in a second. Um, this this importance of, of hope um, as, as something that we need to practice every day. So um, I think that the the thing about this book, which is weird maybe and maybe makes it a little bit unique is that it is this sort of really deep intellectual history and I spent a lot of time talking about various historical and different cultural examples but then I also try to talk about communities in the present day so it's it's not just a historical book it's also a book about the ways in which these communities are existing around the world in different places and for different reasons and in different shapes and and different sizes. And I think that that's part of a big part of what the appeal is for a lot of people right now is, is thinking, look, there are these wonderful historical examples of communities that were kind of organized in a particular way for particular reasons. And what can we learn from them? And how can we then use those examples to make changes in our own lives, again, in the absence of state efforts to actually fix a lot of the problems that we have. So I'll just, you know, continue just for a few more minutes and and talk a little bit more about the, the kind of basic contours of the book. And then this last chapter, which I think is really important about the cognitive capacity for hope and why I think we're in a moment when this cognitive capacity really needs to be strengthened because I think it's been atrophied. So, so the kind of general argument of the book is that, and I mean, I'm really simplifying because obviously it's a 325 page book. And so it is not, um, it's not going to be easily soundbiteable because there are so many different examples, but I would say that the core thing here is that we are dealing with a sort of a fixed um, and ever-growing, but, you know, clear set of problems right now, like one of which is obviously the climate crisis, the the second of which I think is growing inequality, and another one which is really important is isolation and loneliness, kind of a pandemic of isolation and loneliness that many, many people are saying that they feel very disconnected from society. And, and then I would also add to that this sort of difficulty that many families are having in, in raising children. We have like declining birth rates and, you know, lots of stresses around family life and persistent problems with gender equality. So, you know, there's these, these sort of looming issues and all of them are interconnected partially with our economic system and partially with, you know, global changes, geographic changes and environmental and climatic changes. And so what I argue in the book is, and again, I I come from a background in ethnography and anthropology, and I'm really interested in the kind of history and flexibility and adaptability and creativity that humans have always shown around family forms. And what I argue is that 
the biparental mode of two parents, historically heterosexual, raising their own biological children in their own single family abode, surrounded by their privately owned stuff, is a particular model of the family that evolved evolutionarily under a particular set of circumstances. And part of those circumstances have to do with a view of the earth as being never endingly abundant, um, you know, a very extractive view of resources. And so that economic growth and development are like the primary drivers of, you know, society and families in that particular form of the family, which I also argue upholds a particular kind of inequality, actually become drivers of this sort of extractive politics that also ends up isolating us in a particular way. And so even though like when we're young and maybe, you know, if you've ever, you know, if you've gone to college, you, you might've lived in a dormitory or something like that, or even in your twenties, you shared a flat with other people your age. We tend to live more communally in community when we're younger. Certainly as we get older, people move into communities with others like age. So we, we tend to be more open-minded to living in community as we get older, but there are these like crucial, crucial years in the middle when we're raising children, having children, raising children and educating our children where we isolate ourselves and we isolate ourselves in these ways that really exacerbate these problems. And so I try to unpack this, this, this model of biparental care for our own biological children in our single family abode surrounded by our own privately owned stuff. And that is um, by unpacking that model. And, and I go through lots of each individual piece of that gets discussed in a, its own chapter. I say that there's this way in which we can in the future, if we could detach what anthropologists call our mating practices from our childbearing practices, because what we see evolutionarily and um, historically are incredible wide array of different ways of organizing our families and our private lives. And all of those different ways adapt differently depending on environmental, economic, climatic, geographic circumstances. So, you know, where we have, you know, very resource poor areas, let's say in the high up in the Himalayas, where um, you want to really control population in the absence of birth control, you have um, communities uh, that practice polyandry. Polyandry is a form of, you know, um, where one woman has multiple husbands, and this is a natural form of birth control. Um, and so it actually evolves really interestingly in a way where it becomes normal and socially acceptable in those societies, partially because of the resource constraints of those societies. So, and then I can give you all sorts of other examples of family forms that have been flexible and adaptable throughout our evolutionary history. And so as we move into the 21st century, as we move into a world in which the earth's resources are no longer abundant and exploitable as they were in the past, as we move into a world where this high level of inequality, which some people will argue is the driver of economic growth and innovation. And here I'm talking about the work of somebody like Joseph Henrik at Harvard, who has this idea of cultural evolution and, and really, you know, makes this claim that nuclear families are kind of the thing that underpins economic development and capitalism in this really interesting way. But as we move into the future, we're going to really need to start rethinking the way that we organize our private lives, our domestic lives. And, and the book really gives lots of concrete examples of policies and practices and legal changes that can facilitate this new flexible way of organizing our domestic lives in the future. And so then the last part of that, and, and you know, and, and again, as I said, there are lots of examples and there are lots of discussions um, among, you know, I, I try to also address some of the resistance and obstacles to these ideas. But then the very last chapter is about this thing called the cognitive capacity for hope. And social psychologists and uh, people who study, you know, um, kind of human cognition understand that hope is to the future what memory is to the past. So in when we are thinking about memory, we all understand that memory is something that you can use. And then if you don't use it, it gets weaker, right? So like, if you want to do 
memory training. You can actually train your memory. If you go to the grocery store, they say like, you shouldn't, you know, keep a list. You should try to keep your grocery list in your head. Or we used to memorize people's phone numbers and now we've just got them all on speed dial, right? So there's this way in which um, we understand the cognitive capacity of memory. If you're good at memory, you're good at recalling facts, you're good at doing tests, you're good at school often because you have this cognitive capacity to remember. Hope is the cognitive capacity to imagine the future. It's a cognitive capacity to recognize goals, to see goals in the future, and to understand that there will be obstacles and challenges, and then to navigate your way through those challenges, to think about ways of, of, of circumventing those obstacles and challenges. And this is actually a cognitive capacity. It's something that we can learn to do, and it's also something that we can forget how to do. So hope is an emotion as well. It's um, the, the opposite of which is fear and anxiety. Um, but hope as a cognitive capacity is very specifically this ability to imagine futures and then to sort of be goal-directed towards those futures. And it can be done individually, but it can also be done collectively. It can also be done in a group with people together out loud every day. And we live in a world today that is really saturated by dystopian visions of the future. So if you just think like right now, the Black Mirror, new Black Mirror series has just dropped. And, you know, there are all these dystopian, there's like classic dystopian books like 1984 and Brave New World and Lord of the Flies. Um, for tweens, there's The Giver. Um, we have uh, television series like Squid Game or the Hunger Games, movies like The Hunger Games, or, um, you know, all of these different negative, really, uh, what was the movie? Parasite was a very bleak dystopian vision of the future, right? We're constantly bombarded by these dystopian visions. And what these dystopian visions of the future do to us is they atrophy our cognitive capacity to hope. It makes it very difficult for us to imagine these ways forward because we become afraid that if we change anything about the status quo, that things will get worse. And so there's this real kind of political disciplining that dystopia does. And in the end of this book, I make a really concerted argument in favor of what I call militant hope or radical hope. But it, it's not optimism. Optimism is just a belief that things will get better. Hope, this kind of cognitive capacity for hope is the ability is the belief that you can do things that will make things better, which is a, a completely different thing than just thinking that things will all work out in the end. And so I try to make an argument for why I think that this is a particularly salient moment. We're in a very plastic moment after the pandemic. And this is the moment where we really need radical social dreaming, where we really need to let our imaginations run wild, where we really need to flex this cognitive capacity for hope. And we need to help each other practice it. We need to help each other think outside of the box about how we can rearrange our lives in very particular ways that will address some of these really salient issues in the future, like climate change, like the pandemic of loneliness, like extreme inequality, like the burdens, uh, the, the, the scarcity of care and the burdens that are currently placed on our families, as well as these questions of equality and, you know, sustainability and justice. So I'll stop there. And then um, we'll have, I think, plenty of time for questions and answers. Janet says, where do your chapters on the nuclear family fit in the topic of family abolition? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, I am very, and I say this in the book, I don't use the term family abolition. I think that family abolition gets a lot of people's hackles up. They can become very defensive very quickly if you talk about abolishing the family. And I think this is particularly true for immigrant communities, um, for people of color, for whom the family is a really important institution. And for many of us, the family is also an institution where we get or we expect, we try to get kind of unconditional, non-transactionalized love and care and support. And so people can be very, very defensive about what it means 
to abolish the family. It's just a, it's a, it's a word that is very strong. So I speak instead about family expansionism. And so for me, I think that the idea of the family, it's, it's in some ways, it's a very similar concept. It's just that it's a more inclusive way of talking about this, because when we think about the nuclear family, you know, most people are going to be pretty open-minded to allowing, let's say, grandparents to, to participate, especially, you know, it, like the mother's parents, if they're around or usually, you know, can be involved in the children's lives. Sometimes aunts and uncles, again, we're looking at what anthropologists will call consanguineous kin. So people who are blood related to you. But then like in my culture, you know, you have um, compadres, right? So godparents, there, there, are, there are many cultures in which godparents are non-consanguineous kin. There are people who are kind of brought into the family as a way of sort of helping socialize children. They're responsible adults that have a longer lasting connected relationship to the child. And um, and so people understand the concept of godparents, like, okay, so we have got grandparent, grandparents, we might have aunts and uncles, we might have cousins, we might have godparents, okay, and so then we can think about maybe neighbors, maybe we can think about colleagues, we can think about, you know, family friends, and as we start to expand out this notion of the family, that we might have reciprocal relationships of love and care with a greater number of people, that's actually going to take so much of the burden off of the family. So what ha the problem with the nuclear family is that it's so freighted with all of this responsibility around the bearing and raising and educating of the next generation. And what the book is trying to do is say, look, if we did this more collectively, if we did this more traditionally as we did prior in our evolutionary history, where we're cooperative breeders, if we were more cooperative in our breeding practices, now this does, this is, this has to go, this goes back to this idea that we could separate our mating practices from our child rearing practices, that, that currently the nuclear family, this biparental model where um, you know, two parents care for their biological or they can be adopted kid. But the idea is that there's a sort of exclusive biparental care. First of all, this is relatively evolutionarily recent. And secondly, it's actually not all that effective, right? Um, we know we have psychological studies that show that children do much better when they are exposed to a much wider network of caring, loving, supporting adults. And we also, and this is, you know, as a social scientist, this is a really interesting study because you couldn't do this study ethically prior to the pandemic. There's no way you could actually get IRB approval to do this study. But the pandemic, because so many young children were isolated at home with their own two biological parents or their own two, you know, biparental carers, they, um, they're cognitively delayed. We're actually starting to see the effects of the lack of contact with other people. It actually ends up really psychologically hurting children. Now we hope that they'll catch up as they enter into the wider world, but there's this way in which I think uh, a much more capacious and loving and joyful way of thinking about the family is by expanding the family of thinking about family expansionism. We're going to have bigger, greater families they're going to do more for us than thinking about just like abolishing the institution altogether. So that's where I stand on that question of abolition. Yeah. Going down a slightly different uh, path, um, the question goes, do you go into urban planning and the idea of garden cities, uh, Sunnyside Gardens, garden apartments, et cetera? I grew up in a post-war garden apartment development rental. And it was the closest thing to utopia for parents and kids I've experienced. Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the housing chapter talking about urban planning, not very specifically um, going into garden cities, but I talk a lot about the micro districts in Eastern Europe, what were called the micro rayoni and, um, and how they were kind of a prototype for what are called 15 minute cities today. So there are a lot of visions of the ways in which urban architecture can be shaped to make our lives much more connected, um, collective, and contented, as well as sustainable. So I was just down in Vauban, which is a green city in the city of Freiburg here in Germany. And this is an amazing kind of co-housing sort of facility, I guess you would call it. Um, they 
and they had to struggle really hard to try to create a car, car free community, basically. And it's been really successful. It's been around now for about 30 years. And so there are really interesting and I think progressive urban planning uh, designs um, and, and architects who are really thinking creatively about how we can live more sustainably together. And, and it's a combination of in Vauban, this place that I was just last week, they're actually um, building what are called passive houses. Some of them use very, very little energy. And then some of these buildings, one of them is called the solar ship. It's um, it's called an energy plus, which means that it actually creates energy. The, the housing itself creates energy. And these architects down there are really, really creative in the ways in which they're using mostly solar power because Freiburg is a very, very sunny city, but also just the sort of passive building techniques in order to create these more sustainable ways of, of living, forms of living. They've reduced their carbon footprint and their car usage by an incredible amount. But the the other thing that they're doing to reduce their carbon footprint, obviously, is they're living in smaller dwellings and they're sharing more resources. They're sharing communal spaces. They're, they're sharing kitchens and um, laundries and things like that. So there are all these ways in which you can imagine how to change the architecture of particular cities to make it both more sustainable as well as more connected. And a, a great book, by the way, that I recommend on this, if you're interested specifically in urban planning, is Leslie Kern's The Feminist City, which I think came out with Verso a couple of years ago. And she really does a great job, I think, of going into all these different sorts of garden cities and all these different sorts of ways of that people have historically reimagined what a city could look like without like the sprawl of the suburbs that are isolating us and also becoming ecologically unsustainable. Susan says, um, half of the country has been conditioned not to hope how will this participatory practice come into being? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that this is a really, really great question. And I, you know, I'm a college professor and I'm also an activist. And I think that hope is something that can be done alone if you have to, but it's actually something that you can do with other people. And it becomes a kind of, it can become a kind of practice that is contagious. So anarchists will often talk about this concept called contaminationism, which is where, you know, a group of people start doing something and they are doing it well, and they're really happy about what they're doing. And then other people see them and say, oh, look at those happy people over there doing this thing. And so maybe we should do it too. I think what happens, in, especially in the, I would argue, in the United States, but I would say this is maybe more broadly a political problem, is a lot of our politics and our activism are really serious. They're really, really, really serious. And they can be very scoldy, you know, like you have to believe this way or you have to do X, Y, or Z. If you're a really, if you're really going to be an activist, you have to do this. And here, I really like, you know, this paraphrased quote from Emma Goldman, you know, if, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution, right? I think that we need to have our politics be joyous and hope, the ability to hope to say, I think the world will be better. I think there are things that we can do that will address climate change, that will address the pandemic of loneliness and isolation, that will address inequality. And they may not be perfect. They may not be perfect. and you know, they may not work immediately. We have to have a longer term vision here, but they are a, a way of collectively practicing our cognitive capacity to hope. And when we hope, we give others the inspiration to hope. And so in the book, I quote, and I'm going to have to paraphrase this, the Uruguayan poet Eduardo Galeano. And he has this wonderful saying where he says, um, you know, what is utopia? I, 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 I see utopia. I walk two steps towards it. It walks two steps away from me. I walk 10 steps towards utopia and then utopia recedes another 10 steps. No matter how far I walk, utopia keeps moving away. So what is the point of utopia? Galliano says, the point is to keep walking. And I think that that's a message that we need now more than ever is that if we believe that walking towards some different way of being in the world is possible, we inspire others 
those around us by our hope to hope as well. And so I think that this is one of those things where, yeah, we have half of the population that has just completely lost faith in the future. And, but that means that there's work to do. And that's part of what I'm hoping that this book and, 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 you know, many other people who are doing work in this field are trying to get people to recommit to strengthening those cognitive capacities for hope. See, there's, um, what about co-housing and intentional communities, Z asks? Yes. So I spend a lot of time in the book talking about both of these. I think that, so co-housing is, it starts in Denmark, and these are complexes that are often, um, you know, sometimes they still maintain a kind of single family home structure, but they're much smaller homes. Um, and they share usually big resources. So the community that I spent time in is uh, called Two Echo in Maine, just outside of Brunswick, Maine. And this was a, a community that they bought collectively a huge old dairy farm. And they have these individual um, sort of small single family homes, but very close together. And then they have a huge common house where they eat meals and they, you know, get together for um, various events. And, and then there are all these sort of commonly owned things around the property, like gardens and a soccer field and trails and things like that. And so um, that's a kind of classic co-housing community. And, and those are becoming more and more popular, I would say. They're, um, especially here in Germany, they're called Baugruppen here in Germany. And they're very popular because German banks will actually allow for collective mortgages. Uh, Vauban was built on this model. And we are beginning to see this all over Germany, especially Berlin has a very high percentage of these groups of people who come together. They cut out the middleman of a developer, they pool their resources, and then they build a building where they commonly own the building and they own the flats and they sort of basically have like a little homeowners association. And it's a very, very popular model because it's extremely um, economical for people who are buying into these, these uh, Baugruppen. Um, and because banks will give them collective mortgages, which I think is the key kind of innovation in Germany that allows for these things to thrive. Intentional communities are another great way of, of organizing your life. So I looked at Twin Oaks, which is in rural Virginia. It's a community that has existed for now more than 50 years. I believe they celebrated their 50th anniversary in 2017. So this is a group of people who are living together and sharing their resources and raising their children in common. And there are Intentional communities all around the world. Here in Europe, where I am, there are many eco-villages. That's what they're called here. That's what I think they prefer to call themselves here. Many of them are environmentally driven. Like they, their kind of cohesive overarching ideology is about reducing their sustainable, their um, carbon footprint to creating more sustainable ways of living in the world. So there's this wonderful example of Tamara in Southern Portugal, which I also write about in the book. So both intentional communities and co-housing. And then I also talk about things like co-living and, um, and other ways. I, you know, I spent a lot of time actually looking at the history of Cenobitic monasticism. So these are groups of whether followers of the Buddha or early Christians um, or, you know, Benedictine monks and, and various um, orders of nuns who live together for spiritual reasons, right? And if we look at, for instance, St. Benedict of Nursia wrote the rule of St. Benedict in 530 AD. So it's a pretty old document. If you actually go and you look at the rule of St. Benedict, basically what it is, is it is a blueprint for how a bunch of people who aren't related to each other can live together in harmony in a self-sustaining, self-administered, autonomous community, very much almost like an intentional community today. And um, just two weeks ago, I was down in Southern Germany uh, at Campus Gauli, which is a contemporary um, experimental archaeological community, which is rebuilding this thing called the Plan of St. Gall, which is the ideal Benedictine monastery envisioned in 820 to 830 AD. And these experimental archaeologists are rebuilding this cluster. It's called the cluster plan um, using the methods and the materials of the ninth century. So it's a pretty amazing project. 
And what these people are doing is they're really trying to understand how to live in harmony with both nature and with other people, non-consanguineous kin. Um, and I think this is a really important, again, it's, so there are all these different examples. You can think of intentional communities, co-housing, co-living, cloisters. Um, among older women in Europe, there's also this thing called the neo-beguinage, which are groups of older women who get together and they sort of form these sort of secular collectives. Um, so there's all sorts of wonderful examples, I think, of, of people who are trying to instantiate different ways of living collectively in the world and reimagining their domestic sphere to address some of these problems that I've talked about. And the questions keep coming, and this time towards a, a very different direction. Are there distinct dynamics that hold utopian communities in place and or keep them vibrant and or are the natural dynamics that naturally set mo into motion the decline maybe the answer is that we stop walking towards it and think it as a point destination i'm reminded of the burst of community and the new ways of being that rebecca solnit illuminates after various crisis disasters yeah a paradise built in hell right um I think, you know, so I've spent a lot of time talking about this and I was on the Ezra Klein show a month ago or so, and, and he asked me a very similar question. And I think, you know, it, definitely there are a couple of components that I think that utopian communities do really well um, when they, when they have a cohesive sort of commitment that unites the people in the community. So as I said, one of the reasons I think that I spend so much time on these religious communities or spiritual communities is because I think historically a lot of what we would think of as sort of communal living happened within religious orders or within the followers of a particular religious tradition or spiritual tradition. And you see some of that today. There's still some new age communities um, that are that are living together because they're trying to instantiate a particular kind of spirituality in the world. And that shared spirituality really is the glue that holds them together. Um, it also often causes them great trouble. So in the case of the Essenes, this was a Jewish group that existed between the second century BC uh, to the first century AD, and they owned all their property in common and they didn't believe in money. And most importantly, I think they didn't hold slaves. They didn't believe in slavery. And so they had this principle of self-labor, but as I'm sure you can imagine in the Roman Empire, people who didn't believe in money didn't believe in paying taxes or tributes. And so the Romans did not like them and they did not survive. Um, these are the people, by the way, who uh, we think are the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in, in that case, they really met incredible mainstream resistance. Uh, we also know about the Bogomils who started in, you know, what was um, historically the Bulgarian kingdom down in the Balkans. They moved into what is today Bosnia-Herzegovina and into northern Italy. And eventually they settled as the Cathars in southern France. Uh, we, we call them the Albigensians because they were often around Albi. And um, they were one of the, these were um, kind of Manichaean dualists who didn't really, be, they believed that the spirit was sexless, that men and women were basically spiritually equal and could become perfected ones. They didn't believe again in money. They didn't eat flesh. They were celibates. The Catholic church hated them. And um, in the 13th century, 14th century, they were completely wiped out during the Albigensian crusade. So, so some of the, and, and the Beguines, the Beguine nuns in um, the lowlands in Northern Germany and what we are now uh, called Belgium and the Netherlands were also excommunicated, you know, for their particular way of living in the world. So, so often these communities, even though they're spiritual, they can become heretical and excommunicated. They run up against a lot, lot of mainstream resistance. So, so what I would say is that you need the glue that holds them together, but then you also have to recognize that there's going to be mainstream resistance to a lot of these groups. And that can be very difficult to deal with. On the other side is that there's this question of economy. And I think that some communities do really well when they can exist as a community, but they're not trying to create an entire economy of their own. So if you look at the difference between the historical kibbutzim in Israel, where they were agricultural collectives, and what are emerging now in Israeli cities called the urban kibbutzim movement, these are people, young people who are actually working out in the regular economy, 
they have jobs. They're not actually trying to create an economy of their own or an alternative economy. They're actually just working, but they're coming back to an, a place. They're living together. They're sharing their resources in a particular way. They're reinventing, reimagining the, the kibbutz. So everywhere I look around the world, I think there are different ways of of, of, of figuring out how people can and cannot live together. And, and the resistances here, I think, are strong because mainstream communities can be very, very suspicious and hostile to people who are trying to live a different way, even if they're not bothering anybody, right? If they're out there um, doing their thing. And, you know, um, in the United States, we actually have a special section of the tax code for what are called apostolic associations. These associations are taxed in a unique way so that if you have a communal treasury, there's a, there's, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, there are very few examples of these communities where they pay income taxes. So, so we actually um, create pockets of opportunity for these communities to exist. And as long as they kind of like stay out of the mainstream, they can thrive um, if they, you know, if they're willing to deal with the inevitable complications of living in community. But I also think that if they start to expand too quickly and too many people are attracted, then mainstream society can really get aggressive and try to go in and shut these things down. So, so there are always going to be pushes and pulls. And, um, and certainly I think that, you know, we live in a very consumerist society and we live in a society that doesn't think that living in community is a, is a noble or good or successful way to live. And so there are also lots of internalized stereotypes about what it means to be an adult. So, you know, even though you might live with a bunch of flatmates in your twenties, by the time you get old enough to start thinking about maybe starting a family, the kind of marker of adulthood that many of us have is buying a single family home or living in our own big, you know, capacious, spacious flat, having privacy, having a, an acre around us, you know, so we could have our own privately owned swing set rather than having our kids go down to the park to play with other kids. And then, you know, lastly, and this comes back to the wonderful question earlier about urban planning, we have the built environment. We've inherited, especially in the United States, a housing stock that was built for the middle of the 20th century during the Cold War, you know, when we had this sort of, you know, June and Ward Cleaver model of the family. And we, it's very, very difficult to reimagine how we organize our domestic lives if we've inherited the housing stock of a completely different way of being in the world. And this is a real challenge, I think. This is why you know, in Germany, these Baugruppen are so important because they're really building from scratch. They're using architecture and they're using housing development as a way of instantiating their politics. Again, I was just down in Southern Germany and there are various groups that are pooling, they're currently pooling money and resources together to try to build new communities. And they're, they're doing it largely in rural areas because that's where the land is available and it's not that expensive. But I do think that there are opportunities um, to to reimagine the way we live if we could change the environment. And in the United States, we have zoning laws, we have nimbyism, we have all sorts of obstacles. Um, you know, certain, I think it's in Kansas City, Johnson, Johnson County, somewhere outside of Kansas City, where they're like banning co-living, like they don't want non-related people living together because young people are sort of buying houses and saying, well, why don't we live together Um there's this concept of momunes, right? Like young uh, single moms who are divorced or maybe never married and they're coming together and buying houses and raising their kids together in these houses. And so some municipalities don't want people to do that because they're, you know, the neighbors are afraid that it will hurt their housing values or whatever. So there, there are lots of like real kind of just capitalist obstacles in the way, but I don't think it's impossible. I think we just have to be creative in the way that we circumvent these obstacles. Well, we are coming up to the top of the hour, and I wanted to ask you, um, where is your scholarship going from here? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so, um, wow, I just, you know, last year became chair of my department, and so I feel like I just like hit a brick wall with <laughs> with my <laughs> with my ability to think creative thoughts. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really in this interesting kind of liminal space right now where 
as an ethnographer, all of my earlier work was primarily based in Eastern Europe. Like I lived in, you know, did research in the field. And I am really interested in certain kinds of environmental projects, so, sort of around eco-villages, but also adjacent to eco-villages in, here in Europe. There's some really interesting kind of currents going on because there's a, there's a kind of recognition that like corporations and governments are being irresponsible around um, climate change. And obviously people are really feeling the effects of climate change right now. So I have a couple of different possible directions that I think I can go into, but um, given that this book just came out and um, I'm, I'm still, you know, very much in the heads, you know, the mind frame of, of thinking about these different kind of utopian communities historically, but also I would say very much in the present day, I think I'm trying to just maintain a sort of steady focus here on, um, on these topics. And then, you know, as I do more research and talk to more people because I'm still doing interviews right now. I'm still out there in the field. I'm still, you know, um, engaging in a lot of these conversations, especially right now here in Germany, where I think a lot of really interesting things are going on. So I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to stay right now with this idea of what anarchists call prefigurative politics, meaning how can we live in the world as if the world that we live in is the one that we want it to be rather than constantly like fighting against this feeling that we're not winning just imagine that we've already won and what would that look like how would we be living if the world was the way that we wanted it to be and i think that that prefigurative politics is another way of really flexing and strengthening these cognitive capacities for hope yeah, and, and and everyday utopia opens up some numerous rabbit holes that I think one can go into, and some amazing, amazing uh, research that you know I think any students out there that are just looking for subjects to plumb. I mean, this book just kind of opens up you know a lot of different things to think about and a lot to discuss. So, uh, really want to thank you and congratulate you, and and you know show our appreciation that you've created this book. Um, we think it's very important here at City Lights and I encourage everyone, you know, uh, pick up a copy. We have posted links in the chat with which you may buy one. Uh, better yet, if you're in the hood, come on down, browse our stacks. Uh, we have several sections in the store that deal with these subjects and you will find books on our shelves that you will not be able to find anywhere else. So uh, this is why, you know, books like Everyday Utopia, you know, are very, very special to us. Um, come on down, visit us. We're in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We're now get, slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. Professor Godsey, thank you once again. Ever, ever grateful. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It was like, this was the best reason to get up at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.